This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Victims' Rights, The Biblical View of Civil Justice by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1990. This book is dedicated to Baby Doe and the 50 million other victims who are aborted annually worldwide. They, not their executioners, deserve our compassion. Chapter 2. The Death Penalty Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34a As the cosmic lawgiver, God has the right to set the penalties for crimes. Biblical law provides society with God's specified penalties. What is crucial to understand is that the biblical principle of God as the victim who names the penalty leads to a derivative principle. The earthly victim of the prohibited act is also allowed to name the penalty to be imposed on the criminal, so long as it does not exceed the limits specified by the Bible. There is one exception to this rule, argue some biblical scholars. If the specified penalty is death, and if a particular phrase appears in the text, then the state must enforce whenever it unilaterally prosecutes and convicts the criminal. The phrase is, Surely he shall die, or Dying he shall die. This phrase, which biblical scholars call a pleonism, initially appears to be an identifying mark of infractions of God's law that inescapably require the death penalty. I argue that this is an incorrect interpretation of the use of the pleonism. But I could be wrong. This is why we need to explore the usage of this pleonism in the section below. Dying, he shall die. First, however, we must consider the principle of victims' rights. We know that sanctions against non-capital crimes are to be imposed by the civil government at the discretion of the victim. He can refuse to accept any restitution payment or a reduced restitution payment. He can lawfully cancel the debt owed to him, Matthew 18.23-35. I argue that this principle of forgiveness also applies to capital crimes in which there is an identifiable human victim who is capable of bringing a covenant civil lawsuit against the criminal. We see this judicial principle in action at the crucifixion. Jesus requested that the Father not immediately destroy his executioners. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23:34a. He extended additional time to them. This was his unmerited favor or gift to them, just as God had extended life to Adam, Eve, and Cain. As both the primary victim, God, and the secondary victim, perfect man. Jesus Christ possessed the right to extend temporal mercy to his enemies, even for this capital crime. His divinity authorized this extension of mercy. So did his perfect humanity, for he was the victim of a rigged trial. I argue that as the victim, he could lawfully extend mercy only before he physically died. The question is, are victims allowed to extend mercy in cases where the state appears to be required by the presence of the pleonasm, surely he shall die, to execute the convicted criminal? 
We know that in his capacity as a lawful prosecutor of God's covenant lawsuit, the earthly victim does possess the right, the legal authorization from God, to extend mercy to a convicted criminal for any crime other than a capital crime. He can lawfully forgive the restitution payment owed to him. Why not also in the case of a capital crime? The State as God's Prosecutor In order to answer this question, we need to understand that the victim is not only one who can lawfully initiate a covenant lawsuit against a suspected criminal. God is more than one covenantal agent in society. Witnesses can bring incriminating information to an authorized agent of covenantal government, and this agent can lawfully institute covenant lawsuit proceedings against any criminal, but only if there is no earthly victim of the crime who is capable of bringing charges. If there is an identifiable earthly victim, then he alone becomes the exclusive agent who is authorized to initiate a covenant lawsuit against a suspected criminal. This restriction on state's authority to initiate a covenant lawsuit is an implication of the doctrine of victims' rights. The victim possesses the right to forgive. The state is not authorized to ignore or supersede this right. The interests of the community are upheld by identifying the criminal or member of the criminal class. Remember, God is the primary victim of crime. He has authorized representatives to defend the integrity of his name. If a community refuses to do this, if church, state, and family governments break down, God threatens to bring his negative sanctions through other agencies, war, pestilence, and famine, Deuteronomy 28, 15-68. This is why an unsolved murder in a field required a public blood sacrifice by the nearest city's civil magistrates, not the priests, Deuteronomy 21, 1-9. A Legal Claim Who acts as God's authorized agent in the bringing of a covenantal civil lawsuit? The victim the witnesses, or those who are authorized agents of the civil government. If the initiator of the lawsuit is the victim, he is not acting primarily on his own behalf, but as an agent of God because of his position as the victimized intermediary between the criminal and God, the ultimate victim. He is acting secondarily in his own behalf, for any restitution payment will go to him. Similarly, witnesses who bring evidence to the state for use in prosecuting the covenant lawsuit are acting as representative agents of God through the civil government. They do not act on their own behalf, for they have no legal claim on the resources of the person who is being charged with the crime, should he be convicted. Witnesses are not victims. They are acting in the name of God as authorized and oath-bound agents of the state when they testify in a civil court. Where there is no direct legal claim, there is no direct covenantal relationship. Thus, witnesses are acting as indirect agents of God, as participants in the civil commonwealth. Because crimes are always crimes against God, the state has a law enforcement role to play. For the state possesses God's authorized monopoly of the sword, the imposition of physical sanctions. The state, in turn, implicitly delegates the office of witness to those who view a crime or who have information relevant to the state's prosecution of a covenant lawsuit. This is the judicial basis of what in English common law is known as citizen's arrest, although it is seldom invoked today. This is why the state can lawfully compel honest testimony from a witness. The witness is under the authority of the state. It is in fact unlawful to withhold evidence of a crime when subpoenaed. While the state may offer a reward for the capture and conviction of a criminal, a positive sanction, blessing, this is at the discretion of the state. The witness who seeks an announced reward has a claim on the state, not on the criminal. 
The most important example in history of a reward-seeking witness is Judah Iscariot, who collected 30 pieces of silver from the Jewish court to witness against Jesus Christ. He later returned the money, not because it is inherently wrong to accept money as an honest witness, but because he knew he had been a false witness in a rigged, dishonest trial. The Jewish leaders self-righteously replied, What is that to us? Matthew 27, 4b. They felt no sense of guilt, so why should he? They also recognized the tainted nature of the money, which was the price of blood, and as true Pharisees, they refused to accept his repayment. Matthew 27, 6. Committing murder by rigging a court was irrelevant in their view, a means to a legitimate end. Getting paid for false witness-bearing, however, was seen by them as a sin. This is the essence of Phariseeism. The classical historical example of Phariseeism in action. They were happy to serve as the most corrupt court in man's history, but they judiciously refused to accept money for their efforts. What is not recognized by most Christian commentators is that the testimony of a witness in a Jewish court was invalidated, at least by the law of the Pharisees, if he had received payment for testifying. What is my conclusion? Only that witnesses have no legal claim on the criminal. The authorized agents of God in the prosecution of a covenant lawsuit are officers of one of the three courts, church, state, and family, and the victim of the crime. The Right of Refusal If the authorized biblical penalty is economic restitution, then the victim whose covenant lawsuit is successfully prosecuted by the civil government has the right to refuse payment, or the right to take less than what biblical law authorizes. Like the creditor, who has the right to take less in repayment, or to extend the debtor more time to repay, or even to forgive the debt, so is the victim of a criminal, who has been convicted in a court of law. The 19th century Jewish commentator S. R. Hirsch remarked that the victim of a theft can renounce altogether his right to repayment by the sale of the malefactor, and content himself with a signed promise to pay as soon as the circumstances of the thief improve. What if the victim refuses to prosecute? I see no warrant in most cases for the state then to prosecute. The court can lawfully serve as the agent of the victim in certain exceptional cases. Two examples would be victims who are orphaned, minors, or mental incompetence. Nevertheless, under normal circumstances, a decision not to prosecute by a victim who is legally competent to initiate a covenant lawsuit is a binding decision. He thereby loses his legal claim on any future restitution payments by the convicted criminal. If he is willing to suffer this loss, then the state must honor his or her decision. The individual, not the state, is the victim. The principle of victim's rights is binding on the state. Only if the criminal act in some way also injured the state or society could the state then prosecute, but only on its own behalf. The case of Judah and Tamar is representative. Judah refused to prosecute Tamar for whoredom when she brought tangible evidence that he was the guilty party and that she had merely been claiming her legal right to the Liverite marriage. Genesis 38.26 On the other hand, the victim also escapes the threat of a counter-lawsuit from the accused if the latter should be declared innocent by the court. Again, the case of Judah and Tamar is representative. Judah did not want to be convicted of false witness-bearing, for he had committed the crime with her, 
and he was therefore not authorized to bring accusations against her in his own name. As the head of both his family and the local civil government, he dropped all charges. Civil Sanctions Old Testament law specifies that criminals are subject to several types of civil sanctions, corporal punishment, lashings, but with no more than 40 lashes, Deuteronomy 25.3, and the slicing of a woman's hand in one instance, Deuteronomy 25.12, economic restitution, banishment, and the death penalty. The punishment of lashing is curious. No crime in the Bible is specifically said to require lashing. The language of the King James Version indicates an exception to this rule. The required scourging of a bondmaid who is betrothed to one man and who then commits fornication with another man, Leviticus 19.20. However, the Hebrew word translated as scourge does not necessarily mean physical scourging. It is better translated as punishment or even inquiry. Nevertheless, the lack of any reference to specific crimes with which this physical sanction is associated does not mean that no public crime is subject to lashing, or else there would be no prohibition against imposing more than 40 lashes. This is a sanction to be imposed at the discretion of the judges in cases where there is no identifiable victim who has suffered either economic loss or physical or verbal abuse. Presumably, this sanction is appropriate for such acts as public nudity by adults, prostitution, public drunkenness, repeated disturbances of the peace, and public acts prohibited by God, but for which no identifiable victim can be found. The victim of such victimless crimes, God, is entitled to restitution, lashes. Eternal punishment is the model. God is repaid through the suffering of the criminal. In the Old Testament era, if the restitution payment to the victim was larger than the criminal or his kinsman redeemer could afford to pay, the criminal was sold into slavery. The purchase price went to the victim. This was the only way that a Hebrew could become an involuntary lifetime slave in Israel. And even in this instance, it was lifetime slavery only if he could not earn enough to meet the restitution payment or if his kinsman redeemer refused to pay. Non-criminal Hebrew debt slaves were to be released in the seventh sabbatical year, Deuteronomy 15. Voluntary Jubilee year slaves were to be released in the year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, 39-41. The criminal became a slave to another person because he had been a slave to sin. Specifically, he had committed a criminal act that had seriously damaged someone else's property or body. Identifying the Primary Victim Some crimes are so great that God authorizes the death penalty. This means the criminal's immediate deliverance into God's court. This, in turn, leads to his subsequent delivery into permanent slavery in hell and the lake of fire, unless he repents prior to his physical execution by the civil government. This removal of temporal life is restitution to God for a criminal's major transgression of God's covenant laws. The death penalty points clearly to God's position as the primary victim. It also points to his status as eternal judge. In cases of murder, the state becomes the delegated representative of God. The deceased obviously cannot initiate the covenant lawsuit. The state, therefore, initiates it on behalf of both the deceased and God. No restitution payment is possible to the deceased. Thus, God must judge the criminal directly in his court. The state is required to deliver the criminal's soul immediately into the hands of God, who is the primary victim, 
and also a legal representative of the deceased victim. The state must not allow a murderer to escape immediate entry into God's court, physical execution, by the payment of a fine. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. Numbers 35.31 Christ's resurrection is the basis of man's escape from God's immediate and direct imposition of the death penalty, both the first death, physical death, and the eternal second death. Revelation 20.14 Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, his previous grant of temporary forgiveness to Rome and Israel received God's sanction. It was also on the basis of this resurrection that God granted a stay of execution to Adam and Eve, but judgment eventually comes in history. Adam and Eve died, and Israel and Rome fell. The question then arises, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ also serve as the basis of a man's legitimate escape from the death penalty from a civil court? If so, in which cases and on what judicial basis? Dying, he must die. We need to deal with a problem of interpretation that confronts us over and over in Old Testament case laws. It is a phrase that occurs in many passages. A person convicted of a specified crime shall surely be put to death. As mentioned earlier, the Hebrew phrase is what scholars call a pleonism. Dying, he shall surely die. It is emphatic language. He, we find it in Exodus 21.12. He that smiteth a man so that he die shall be surely put to death. James Jordan commented in 1984, quote, The emphasis means that the death penalty cannot be set aside by any payment of money, end quote. But because of a series of problems in interpretation, he subsequently changed his mind about the meaning of this pleonism. What is the problem? Why should the interpretation of this pleonism of execution be such a problem? Because the same phrase appears in the case of crimes that we normally would not think would involve automatic capital punishment. These include crimes that have no immediate human victims, Sabbath breaking, Exodus 31, 14 through 15, and bestiality, Exodus 22, 19, Leviticus 20, 15 and 16. These also include crimes in which no one dies, assaulting parents physically, Exodus 21, 15, or verbally, Exodus 21, 17, Adultery that involves another man's wife, Leviticus 20.10. Blasphemy against God, Leviticus 24.16. And wizardry and witchcraft, Leviticus 20.27. One crime to which this pleonism is attached is often regarded by modern societies as a capital crime, kidnapping, Exodus 21.16. To survey the nature of the exegetical problem, let us consider in greater detail the case of adultery that involves a man with another man's wife. And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Leviticus 20.10 The pleonism of execution appears here. Shall surely be put to death. Capital punishment for both of the adulterers can legitimately be imposed at the insistence of the victim, the woman's husband. Why? Because the government of the covenantal family was broken by adultery. The injured party, meaning the head of the household, is the lawful covenantal representative of God. He is authorized to bring charges against the adulterers as the injured party and also as the head of the family unit. 
because the Bible specifies adultery as a civil crime, he also brings this lawsuit in civil court. The victimized husband can lawfully file the covenant lawsuit in up to three covenantal courts, family, church, and state. A covenant lawsuit is first presented by the victimized husband to the suspected partner, and then, at the discretion of the victimized husband, it is presented in the appropriate court or courts. The institutional church has a legitimate role to play if either of the marriage partners is a member. It pronounces the sentence of covenantal death against the offending party. Thus, adultery can sometimes affect all three covenantal institutions. The victim declares that the covenantal bond of marriage has been broken, and that the adulterers have now come under God's wrath. If the suspected adulterous male partner is married, his wife can also file appropriate lawsuits against her husband. Biblical law makes it clear, however, that the husband of the adulterous wife has primary authority to specify the penalty. It is his covenantal household office as the head of the family that has been attacked by the adulterers. If he decides on the death penalty for his wife, as we shall see, her criminal consort cannot escape her fate. As the officer of his family's government, the victimized husband specifies the penalty the wife of the adulterer cannot stay the hand of the civil magistrate. Two questions arise. Can the husband legally grant mercy to the wife if she is convicted? That is, can he specify a lesser punishment? Furthermore, if he can, and if he does this, must he show equal mercy to the convicted man? No respect for persons. The example of Jesus on the cross indicates that the victim can lawfully spare the criminal. He asked his father to forgive them, meaning Jews and Romans, Luke 23:34. He spared both of the adulterers, Israel and her consort, Rome. Israel, again and again in Old Testament history, committed spiritual adultery with foreign gods and nations, yet God always spared the nation until A.D. 70. The book of Hosea centers on this theme of the husband's forgiveness of an adulterous wife. Romans 11 indicates that professing Israel will someday be regrafted into the church through mass conversion. So God has still withheld the death penalty from Israel as a covenantal people, though not necessarily as the modern political unit that we call the state of Israel. What is the problem here? The pleonism appears in Leviticus 20.10, Dying, they shall die. If the language of inescapable death is accepted at face value, then the husband of the adulteress cannot lawfully request a reduced penalty, such as the forfeiture of her dowry to him, rather than insist on her execution. But is he so restricted? God spared Israel time after time. It would seem reasonable that the injured husband might prefer a lesser penalty, just as God did with Israel. Maybe he still loves her. Maybe this is her first transgression. He feels deeply injured, but not enough to have her executed. Perhaps she is a good mother. Perhaps he wants to keep her as his wife. Perhaps not. What if he wants a divorce? This would be granted by the state. He could also require her to transfer her dowry to him. By showing mercy to his wife, he must also show mercy to her consort. In the case of adultery involving another man's wife, the two adulterers must receive the same negative sanction. The judges are not permitted to show partiality to persons in rendering official judgment. The victimized husband, who decides to prosecute, is acting as a judge, for if the adulterers are convicted... He specifies the penalty. If he wants total vengeance against the man, he must also demand the same penalty for his wife. If he shows leniency to her, he must show the same leniency to him. Why? Because in our capacity as God-ordained judges, men are not to show partiality. 
or as the Bible says, respect of persons. Deuteronomy 1, 17, 16, 19, 2 Samuel 14, 14, Acts 10, 34. When Joseph decided as a just man to put Mary away privately, he necessarily also decided not to seek civil justice against any suspected consort. The Bible does not directly discuss the question of leniency by the victim. The pleonism, dying they shall die, is attached to this crime of adultery. Leviticus 20.10 Nevertheless, I am arguing that the victim can specify a lesser penalty for the adulterers. If I am correct, then in such cases the criminals do not surely die at the hands of the court. But if they are not automatically executed upon conviction, then what does the presence of the pleonism mean? Why is it found in some biblical texts specifying capital punishment, but not in all of them? The pleonism is there for emphasis. The lexicographers say, Then what exactly does it emphasize? Not the absolute necessity of the death penalty in every case in which it appears, if I am correct in my reasoning. It does not apply in cases where the victim shows leniency. The victim decides. The Victimized Wife The Old Testament specifies the death penalty for wives who commit adultery. It does not specify the death penalty for a husband who commits adultery. Is this an oversight? Or does this indicate that God does respect persons, leaving victimized wives more vulnerable than victimized husbands? Does the Mosaic Law in fact show respect for persons, discriminating against victimized wives? The answer is found in the nature of the lawsuit. The victimized husband brings the lawsuit in his capacity as head of his household. The family is one of God's three covenantal governments. It is marked by a covenantal oath. Thus, the death penalty as the maximum for an adulterous wife places the decision in the hands of a covenant head. It is not that the Bible discriminates against victimized wives. It simply places the primary authority for prosecuting the covenant lawsuit in the hands of the covenantal head of the household. If the adulterous wife could be executed at the discretion of the wife of her adulterous consort, then the primary authority to impose the penalty would be removed from the head of the household and transferred to the subordinate member of another household. The victimized husband, who had decided to keep his wife, would lose her if the wife of her consort prosecuted, saw her husband convicted, and asked for the death penalty. Since the court is not allowed to discriminate, it would also have to execute the adulterous wife. Thus, the adulterous wife's husband would lose control over the sanction. The victimized wife can lawfully sue for divorce. The judges are authorized to grant this. Even if the husband of the adulterous wife does not insist on a divorce, the victimized wife is allowed to gain legal separation. Why? If there must be equality of negative sanctions placed on both adulterers, because the judge's announcement of the divorce is not the imposition of a negative sanction, it is simply a legal announcement of a broken marriage. The marriage was covenantally broken by her husband's act of adultery. The wife is simply declaring her formal acceptance of her new legal status as an unmarried woman. She asks the court to make this, this declaration public. Biblical law always protects the innocent party. She is not compelled to readopt her husband back into the marriage. But she cannot lawfully insist on physical execution of her adulterous husband. The wife of an adulterous husband has only secondary rights as a victim 
because in this two-party sin, she is the secondary earthly victim. She is not the head of her household. She cannot lawfully seek the execution of the victimized husband's wife by insisting on the execution of her husband. The Bible is silent regarding the execution of an adulterous husband who commits adultery with an unmarried woman. It is clear, however, that his wife is the primary earthly victim. It seems to me that the wife, as the primary earthly victim, then gains the legal authority to prosecute the two adulterers to the limit of the law. She can require the execution of both partners if they are convicted of adultery by a civil court. If I am correct about this, then we now know why there is no civil sanction against prostitution specified in the Old Testament, except for the required execution of the daughter of a priest who becomes a prostitute. And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself by playing the whore, she profaneth her father, she shall be burnt with fire. Leviticus 21.9 If the victimized wife can have her convicted husband executed for having committed adultery with the prostitute, then the prostitute is required to share his fate. Thus, there is no need for an explicit civil sanction against prostitution. The victimized wife decides. If this view is correct, then the threat of the capital sanction would tend to confine prostitution to unmarried persons. It would therefore reduce prostitution's assault on marriage. The Victim's Decision What would it take to get a victim to accept a reduced penalty? The criminal would make a public confession of guilt and repentance and then offer to pay restitution to the victim. This might work. Then again, it might not. The key to the criminal's escape from, the, from death is the decision of the victim. The victim cannot lawfully demand a penalty greater than the one specified in the case law, but he can accept something less. In a letter essay, James Jordan took another look at the pleonism, Surely he shall die. He cites Numbers 35, 30, and 31. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In a later essay, James Jordan took another look at the pleonism, surely he shall die. He cites Numbers 35, 30, and 31. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses, but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. The law specifically says that there can be no substitute payment. The question then arises, which is more authoritative, the pleonism's language or the automatic penalty attached to murder? Is murder unique? Is it only in murder cases that the state must invariably impose the death penalty? Or is the death penalty the inescapable consequence of the pleonism? Does the presence of the pleonism indicate the idea of accept no substitutes wherever it occurs? Or is it merely emphasis? If merely emphasis, what exactly does it emphasize? If adultery always requires the death penalty, Leviticus 20.10, Jordan asks, then why did Joseph decide to put Mary away quietly rather than prosecuting her? Matthew 1.19 My answer, victim's rights. The primary earthly victim always has the legal right not to prosecute. This was Joseph's decision. The civil government was not to intervene, nor was the priestly government. Similarly, 
the decision to forgive was also Christ's decision at the cross. Although he had earlier warned the Jewish leaders that he would eventually bring judgment on them, Luke 21, which he did in A.D. 70. Joseph forgave Mary. This was clearly a decision made under the terms of Old Covenant law. The New Covenant had not yet been established. Thus, when the text identifies Joseph as a just man, its frame of reference is the Old Covenant law. Joseph was not violating any principle of the Mosaic law when he showed mercy to Mary and he refused to prosecute. He chose to put her away quietly in order to avoid having to bring a civil covenant lawsuit against her. In his capacity as the betrothed husband, Joseph decided to break off the betrothal. Only if Mary's family had protested. Unlikely given the apparent circumstances of her pregnancy and the capital sanction involved, Deuteronomy 22, 20, and 21, would he have been required to pursue his accusation in a civil or ecclesiastical court in order to defend his decision to break the betrothal? The first question then is this. If the victim does decide to prosecute and the person is convicted, can the victim then specify a lesser penalty? I think the answer is yes. I offer the explanation the principle of victim's rights still applies. But in the case of murder, the victim cannot volunteer to accept a reduced penalty. Thus, the state must impose the maximum penalty. This leads me to a general principle. When the state becomes the prosecuting agent of case laws where this pleonism occurs, it must enforce the death penalty on conviction. There are no exceptions. The second question is this. If the victim decides not to prosecute, can any other court intervene and prosecute in God's name? The case of Joseph and Mary indicates that Joseph's decision would have been authoritative and final. Her pregnancy would have been visible to all, yet if he had chosen not to prosecute, she could remain free of concern about any other court bringing charges against her. Had she actually been an adulteress and had her consort been married, then the victimized wife could bring charges against them. But she could gain only a divorce. The court's declaration of a broken marriage she could not require civil pen penalties against Mary, and therefore also not against her husband. Joseph, not the victimized wife, was the primary earthly victim, and therefore the only one who possessed the option of freeing his betrothed wife from any civil penalties. What does the pleonasm emphasize? I think the pleonasm identifies crimes that are the highest on God's list of abominations. The normal penalty for these crimes is death. Anything less than this, which the victim specifies, is a manifestation of great mercy. By upholding the principle of victims' rights, biblical law also creates incentives for criminals to deal less harshly with victims during the actual crime. If the victim is not brutalized, he may decide to show leniency if the criminal is later convicted. This protects the victim. Biblical law is designed to protect the victim. Must civil judges impose the maximum penalty allowed by biblical law when the state is the victim, or when by law the state is God's designated agent to protect the community by upholding God's rights and enforcing his sanctions? Not always. The principle of victims' rights governs the imposition of civil sanctions. Judges have the God-given authority to impose a reduced penalty according to circumstances. The only exceptions to this rule are those cases in which the pleonasm occurs. The judges cannot reduce the sanctions in such cases. This is the meaning of, of the pleonasm. 
the elimination of judicial discretion in imposing sanctions when the state initiates the lawsuit. Consider two alternative lines of reasoning. First, if we argue that the judges must impose the maximum penalty in all cases that specify the death penalty, irrespective of the presence of the pleonasm, then the emphasis aspect of the pleonasm disappears judicially. If all capital crimes require the death penalty, of what purpose is the pleonasm? This would indicate that the pleonasm has some function other than judicial emphasis. I cannot imagine what this other function might be. The presence of the pleonasm must indicate the legitimacy of judicial discretion in cases where the pleonasm is missing. By requiring judges to impose the maximum penalty in all cases, judicial discretion disappears. The judicial principle of victims' rights would therefore disappear. Second, if we argue that the judges can in all cases legitimately impose a lesser penalty, then the emphasis aspect of the pleonasm also disappears judicially. Cases that are governed by the pleonasm would then become indistinguishable from those that are not. The pleonasm would lose its force. My conclusion is this. If the pleonasm of execution is understood to have any judicial effect in distinguishing capital cases, and if the principle of victims' rights is also to be honored in all cases, then the pleonasm should be interpreted as eliminating judicial discretion in applying sanctions in all cases in which prosecution has been lawfully initiated by the civil government. The judges must not reduce the sanction of execution in any case in which 1. The state lawfully initiates the lawsuit and 2. The sanction is marked by the pleonasm. Thus, the pleonasm applies only to a unique set of capital crimes where there is no identifiable or surviving human or institutional victim who could specify a reduced sanction. The victim is God alone. The state, therefore, is authorized to initiate the covenant lawsuit. There is no earthly victim who has the authority to reduce a sanction. The community, through the civil government, is called upon to execute the convicted criminal. In short, in the so-called victimless crimes, in which the pleonasm of execution applies, civil judges have no choice in deciding on the appropriate sanction. The sanction is always execution. Dying, he shall die. Binds the judges in capital crimes where the state acts as the covenant lawsuit's prosecutor without the presence of an intermediary or representative human victim. The pleonasm is not a denial of the principle of victim's rights because God, as a primary cosmic victim, has specified the appropriate sanction. This sanction must be imposed by the state in the absence of any secondary victim, a victim who is always authorized to speak in God's name. In the absence of such a representative, the pleonasm takes effect. The pleonasm must therefore not be understood as a limitation on the judicial principle of victims' rights. It limits the discretion of civil judges in those cases where there is no identifiable or surviving earthly victim, but it does not limit the discretion of the victim. Biblical law allows the victim, as God's representative, to reduce the penalty. Rabbinic Law Rabbinic law also recognizes the legitimacy of the victim's option of reducing or forgiving a criminal, as S. R. Hirsch's previous comments indicate, but not in capital crimes. While he did not refer to the pleonasm, Hirsch summarized the principle of Jewish law with respect to capital crimes. Quote, the whole idea of the right to grant clemency or mercy was entirely absent in the Jewish code of law. 
justice and judgment is the prerogative of God, not man. When the very precisely defined law of God, giving man no scope for his own judgment or arbitrary discretion, ordains death for a criminal, the carrying out of this sentence is not an act of harshness to be commuted for any consideration whatsoever. It is itself the most considerate atonement, atonement for the community, atonement for the land, atonement for the criminal, dot, 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 end quote. The Christian cannot legitimately speak of atonement through a criminal's execution in this post-Calvary era, but he can and should speak of delivering the criminal directly into God's court, thereby placing him under God's sanctions rather than placing the community under God's sanctions for its unwillingness to obey God's law. The community that allows a criminal convicted of a capital crime to live is like a community that offers sanctuary to someone who is supposed to be tried in God's court. A community is required by God to extradite him. It cannot legitimately offer the evildoer sanctuary. The text of Exodus 21.14 is clear. Thou shalt take him from mine altar, that he may die. If a criminal is not to be granted sanctuary from a human civil court at the very altar of God, then surely a human civil court cannot legitimately grant him sanctuary by refusing to extradite him to God's heavenly court by executing him. Taking a Rebellious Son to Court In chapter 1, pages 21 and 22, I raise the question of the parents' willingness to take a rebellious son to court. Would they do this if the death penalty were inescapable upon his conviction? Probably not. The key question then is this. Is the death penalty absolutely required by the pleonism of execution? The point I have tried to make in this exposition is that this pleonism applies only in cases where the state is authorized to initiate the prosecution. For example, in cases where there is no earthly victim who can bring charges. This is not the situation in cases involving a rebellious son. Parents can and must bring their son before the civil authorities and complain about his conduct. God requires them to bring him to the civil court. The judges would then enforce a penalty specified by the parents, although they might first recommend an appropriate penalty. The son would obey his parents far more readily in the future, since he would know that the parents could take him back and insist on escalating penalties up to the death penalty if he committed similar infractions again. This fear would reinforce the parents' authority in the home. What if they refuse to bring a formal charge against their rebellious son? Then they have implicitly subsidized evil behavior. They have implicitly sanctioned it. They know that they are risking the possibility that he will become an incorrigible adult. If he does, they will lose him anyway. Better to bring him before the civil court early. Better to obey God. Better to avoid God's sanctions against the family for the parents' refusal to obey. The son may learn fear of the civil court even though he has no fear of the family court. If they bring him several times, the court will undoubtedly recommend increased sanctions. He has been identified as an incorrigible youth. The day that he commits a crime against someone outside his family, the court will be able to demonstrate to the victim that leniency is no solution, that this man is a habitual criminal. Thus, by allowing parents to insist on the death penalty, but by also allowing them to, them to be lenient, God encourages parents to identify rebellious sons before the latter become incorrigible criminals the court can take steps to enforce parentally recommended sanctions before it is too late. This law, Rushduni perceptively argues, is a law against the development of a professional criminal class. Quote, 
but the godly exercise of capital punishment cleanses the land of evil and protects the righteous. In calling for the death of incorrigible juvenile delinquents, which means, therefore, in terms of case law, the death of incorrigible adult delinquents, the law declares, So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Deuteronomy 21.21 What is true of this case law is true of all other capital cases in which this pleonasm occurs, and in which the victim is the specified agent who brings the covenant lawsuit. The victim has the option of specifying the penalty. If the case is one in which the state lawfully prosecutes in God's name, then the pleonasm is binding. Execution is mandatory. Noah's Covenant and Execution Dispensational authors H. Wayne House and Thomas Ice present a weak case for their speculations regarding the pre-New Covenant legal order as it applied to the nations. They insist that, quote, Nowhere in the nations is capital punishment obligatorily extended beyond the penalty for taking human life, dot, 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 end quote. They assert, though do not prove, that none of the Mosaic Law's sanctions ever applied directly or even was intended in principle to apply to the nations except the capital sanction for murder. This unique sanction is binding on all men always, they argue, so its authority came from Noah to Moses. It in no way went from Moses to the nations. This is a clever attempt to escape the suggestion that in the New Covenant era, Christians have a responsibility to pressure civil governments to impose specific sanctions against specific crimes on the basis of biblical revelation. Such a view of Noahic biblical law, if correct, would allow Christians to avoid personal responsibility in civil affairs, since they could not speak authoritatively in the name of the Lord when it comes to specifying civil crimes or penalties. The price of such a theological position regarding biblical law is, predictably, the cultural, political, and judicial irrelevance of Christianity. This is why dispensationalism is in principle culturally retreatist and culturally irrelevant, and why no dispensationalist in over a century and a half has published a book on Christian social ethics during the so-called Church Age. House and Ice go on to say that, quote, in Israel, this penalty, execution, was exacted for various crimes, dot, 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 end quote. If they mean merely that in Israel, the maximum sanction of execution could be required by the victim in several capital crimes, then they are correct. If they mean that in those cases where the state lawfully prosecuted in God's name as his designated representative, and where the pleonasm, dying, he shall surely die, was attached to the biblical sanction, then they are also correct. If this is all they mean, however, then they have not said anything very significant. They have not shown that God restricted these judicial principles to Old Covenant Israel. The judicial principle of a maximum allowable sanction for any given crime was also, in principle, God's requirement for the nations. Without this, God imposed judicial restriction. The state can lawfully become all-powerful, messianic, and therefore demonic. There will always be sanctions imposed by civil government. The only question is, Whose law establishes the specified judicial limits of state-imposed sanctions, God's or self-proclaimed autonomous man's? To answer, as House and Ice do, that it depends upon when and where you live in God's world, is to abandon the concept of universal biblical ethics and therefore also to abandon the principle of universally restricted civil governments. Any attempted distinction between the Old Covenant nations and Mosaic Israel 
which is based on a theory of differing judicial sanctions for the same civil crimes, is misguided. Civil sanctions are always specified by God because God always wants limits on the state and always wants to see victims protected. In other words, He always wants judicial limits on the pretensions of autonomous man. God killed nations under the Old Covenant, just as He kills New Covenant nations, because they fail to apply His civil sanctions in history. If this was not the message which Jonah brought to Nineveh, what was? The principle of victim-imposed sanctions is also God's requirement for all nations in this New Covenant era. Now that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, plus the sending of the Holy Spirit and the creation of the Church, have extended God's now-resurrected law order to the nations. The New Covenant is truly new. Its Bible-specified laws and sanctions have been universalized definitively in history by the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is behind us. Surely, the sanctions of God's law for the nations are no less binding today than before Christ arose from the dead and incorporated His Church. Yet House and Ice insist that the Mosaic sanctions are even less binding, for the Mosaic law does not even bind national Israel any longer, and so the law has no visible geographical example and testimony as it had in the Old Covenant era. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 House and Ice do their dispensational best to create a false dichotomy between the God-required social laws of nations and the Mosaic social laws of Israel. They also try to create a dichotomy between New Covenant social laws and the Mosaic social laws. They want to place all Christians under the penal sanctions of the Noahic Covenant, as the Calvinist ethicist John Murray sought to do before them, both in the Old Covenant era and in the New Covenant era. Noah's Covenant, Low Content Why this preference by modern conservative theologians for Noah's Covenant? Because in Noah's Covenant, only one civil infraction is specified, murder, and only one's penal sanction, execution, Genesis 9.5. This absence of judicial specifics allows the civil government to specify as criminal whatever behavior it disapproves of, and also allows it to impose whatever sanctions it wants to, without any mandatory reference to any other biblical law or sanction. This political perspective is basically an application of pre-Darwinian humanism's social contract or social compact theory of the state, pioneered by Thomas Hobbes in Leviathan, 1651 and developed by John Locke, 1690, and Rousseau, 1762. This older viewpoint was originally a secularized version of, and reaction against, the Puritans' biblical covenant theory of civil government. It imputes primary sovereignty to the people rather than to God and His revealed law. What is judiciously not discussed by the defenders of the Noahic covenant theory of the state is that the older social contract theory relied completely on the concept of natural law, and in Locke's case, natural rights. This epistemologically naive view of civil law has been refuted from two sides, by Darwinism's view of the evolving universe and by Van Til's presuppositional apologetic. Without the doctrine of natural law or some version of natural rights theory to govern their theory of the state, Defenders of the Noahic Covenant theory have implicitly granted judicially unlimited power to the modern state, no matter how much they protect against such a development. They may be political conservatives personally. It makes no difference. Their personal political preferences become just that, personal preferences. Their personal political preferences are self-consciously and explicitly unconnected with any biblical, theological system of social ethics and political theory. 
Such a view of Noah's low-content covenant grants enormous authority to self-proclaimed autonomous man and his representative, the messianic state. The power-seeking covenant breaker is as pleased with such a view of the state as the responsibility-fleeing Christian pietist is. This is why there is now and always has been an implicit judicial alliance between antinomian Christians and humanist statists. Here is an ideal way to silence Christians in all judicial matters except murder. Insist that, quote, the Bible doesn't offer a blueprint for civil law, end quote. With this judicial affirmation, antinomian, responsibility-fleeing Christians sound the retreat, and secular humanists and other covenant-breaking power seekers sound the attack. The victim is in principle victimized ever further by this view of Noah's drastically restricted covenant, and the messianic state is unchained by it. All this is accomplished in the name of a higher view of theistic ethics than the Mosaic law supposedly offered to the Israelites. This supposed dichotomy between Noah's covenantal sanctions and Moses' covenantal sanctions, and also between Moses' covenantal sanctions and Jesus' covenantal sanctions, cannot survive a careful examination of the biblical principle of victims' rights, which is also the principle of the judicially limited state. The biblical judicial principle is this. Victims of criminal acts possess the God-granted legal right to specify no penalty or any penalty up to the maximum limit allowed by God's Bible-revealed law. Neither the state nor the humanistic sociologist is entitled by God to increase or reduce this victim-specified penalty. But in order to keep the principle of victims' rights from becoming tyrannical, God's law specifies maximum penalties. Men must be restrained by law, including victims. To argue that there ever was or ever is or ever will be a time when men are not under God's specified judicial sanctions is to argue that they are under sanctions imposed by autonomous man, meaning the self-proclaimed autonomous state. In short, to argue this is inescapably to argue also that God has in history authorized either the tyranny of the unchained state or else the implicit subsidizing of criminal behavior through the state's unwillingness to impose God's specified sanctions. In either case, victims lose. This is what antinomians of all varieties refuse even to discuss, let alone answer biblically. There will always be sanctions. The relevant questions are, which sanctions? What laws? Who judges? There will always be judicial chains, either attached to Satan, Revelation 20, 1 and 2, his demonic host, 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, and his covenantal earthly representatives, or else attached to the righteous victims of Satan's covenantal representatives, Acts 12, 7 and 21, 33. The modern antinomian Christian and the modern power-seeking statist want to break God's judicial chain, his revealed law. The result is the victimization of the judicially innocent and the expansion of the messianic state. Conclusion All sins are against God and God's law. All sinners are criminals in the hand of a temporarily merciful victim. God sits on his throne as final judge and even temporal judge. For example, he slew Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, 5 and 10. But to sin against God, men usually must sin against something in the creation. The Bible provides case laws that define those sins against any aspect of the creation, which constitutes civil, familial, or ecclesiastical infractions. Where a sin does constitute an infraction, 
the victim must represent God by becoming a plaintiff against the sinner. He upholds the integrity of the injured party and also seeks restitution. In some cases, restitution is made only to the victim. In other cases, it must also be made to God through a payment to his church. Leviticus 6, 1-7 The Bible provides five remedies for criminal behavior. 1. Flogging, up to 40 lashes. 2. The slashing of a woman's hand. 3. Economic restitution, which can be large enough to require. 4. Up to a lifetime of bondage. and 5. Execution. The goals of these penalties include 1. Upholding God's interests by enforcing His law, civil worship. 2. Penalizing criminal behavior, sometimes by removing the criminal from this world, vengeance. 3. Warning all people of the eternal judgment to come, evangelism. 4. Protecting civil order, deterrence. and 5. Protecting the interests of the victims, justice. Ultimately, all of these goals can be summarized in one phrase, upholding God's covenant. Notice that there is no mention of imprisonment. Hirsch wrote a century and a half ago, quote, Punishments of imprisonment, with all the intendant despair and moral degradation that dwell behind prison bars, with all the worry and distress that it entails for wife and child, are unknown in Torah jurisprudence. Where its power holds sway, prison for criminals does not exist. It only knows of remand custody. And even this, according to the whole prescribed legal procedure, and especially through the absolute rejection of all circumstantial evidence, can only be of the shortest duration, end quote. The law upholds the victim's interests. The criminal is to make restitution to his victim. The victim has the right to extend mercy, but that is his decision, not the judge's. Judges are to serve as agents of the victims, who is God's primary earthly representative in criminal affairs. The primary goal of criminal justice theory should be to discover and enforce civil penalties that uphold victims' rights within the guidelines established by Scripture. When the victim refuses to prosecute, the other covenantal courts are required by God to honor this decision. The criminal is not to be prosecuted by any covenantal court without the cooperation of the victim. When the state is the victim, or when a victim cannot be identified, for example, a speeding violation, the judges are allowed to impose penalties up to the limit of God's Bible-revealed civil law, or when a penalty is not specified by the Bible, up to the limit of the written statute. They can also impose reduced penalties, except where the pleonasm occurs. Where the pleonasm occurs, and where the state is not itself the victim, the judges must act as God's agents and impose the penalty that the pleonasm requires. This is the judicial function of the pleonasm of execution a restriction on leniency by civil judges when punishing victimless crimes. The judges must execute the convicted criminal without mercy. God requires him to be delivered speedily into his court. Those who reject my thesis regarding the pleonasm must solve some very difficult problems. First, on what legal basis other than victims' rights did Joseph, said by the text to be a just man, fail to prosecute Mary, either in a priestly court or a civil court? Had the law's sanction been changed by God before the birth of Jesus Christ? What is the evidence for such a view of the law's sanctions? Second, on what legal basis other than victims' rights did Jesus announce the temporal forgiveness of those who had crucified him? Third, on what legal basis other than victims' rights had God refused to execute Israel for her adulteries? Put differently, what was the the judicial basis of the book of Hosea? Fourth, 
On what legal basis other than victims' rights did God divorce Israel when he transferred his kingdom to the church? Matthew 21:43. Yet also allow her to survive another generation after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the incorporation of the church by the Holy Spirit. Not until critics provide consistent, well-developed, Bible-supported answers to these and related judicial questions should they abandon the principle of victims' rights. For whosoever doeth any work therein shall shall not be cut off from among his people. No instances of the pleonasm appear in the book of Deuteronomy. I do not think that this has any biblical theological significance. The biblical hermeneutical principle of the continuity of a God-revealed law is that unless a law or its sanction is repealed by a subsequent biblical revelation, it is still judicially binding. The pleonasms did not have to be repeated in Deuteronomy in order for them to be binding in the land. God's laws in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers were not exclusively wilderness laws, with the laws of Deuteronomy alone to serve as a law of Israel in the land. In any case, the severity of God's sanctions tends to increase over time as men's maturity increases. This is a basic principle of biblical jurisprudence. Men's knowledge of God increases over time, and so does their personal and corporate responsibility. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Luke twelve forty six to 48 because they were required by God to exercise greater responsibility in the promised land, as testified to by the ending of the miraculous agricultural subsidy of the manna, Joshua 5.12. The law's civil sanctions did not decrease in rigor. If anything, they increased. The pleonasm was still judicially binding in Canaan. The equivalent phrase in Deuteronomy is, So shalt thou put, purge, evil away from you. Deuteronomy 17.7.19.19.21.21.24.24.7 The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.